So athletes, in my view, make phenomenal entrepreneurs. They're just kind of not aware of the intangibles that they already possess, that they already have, that really kind of can't be taught, if you will, right? So if you're a top performing athlete, you have tenacity, you have grit, you go through and you learn plays and you practice them time and time and time again. And the outside people see that as, well, it's failure, right? If a play didn't work out, it's failure. That's not what an athlete thinks of it. If a play doesn't work out, they're like, okay, I'm going to do something else until, until it does work. Same thing when I was coding. When my code didn't work, I didn't sit there and think, oh, it, it fa- I failed. I just said, no, it doesn't work. I got to keep doing it till it works. And so athletes, especially top performing athletes, already possess these intangibles that are so valuable for entrepreneurship. It's just they kind of need that mentorship and that guidance to take that first step. This is Patrick McQuown, Executive Director of Entrepreneurship at Towson University, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports, health, and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week, I'm excited to travel down to Towson University to meet with Patrick McQuown, who's the Executive Director of Entrepreneurship at Towson, and he was previously the Executive Director for Entrepreneurship at JMU, and he sold two companies by the time he was in his 40s, one being Proteus and the other being a Single Point. So today, Patrick was kind enough to invite me down to be in his cohort group, and I was very engaged. He gave me some reading, some homework to do, and that was it was fun. So we're excited to hear about his process as an entrepreneur and then how he's mentoring a lot of athletes who are just transitioning to life after sports as well. So Patrick, thank you for the invite down and all the, the hospitality. Can you start us off by kind of how did you start off as an entrepreneur and starting Proteus? And in the context of, you know, an athlete who's like, all right, my career's over. I think I might want to dive into entrepreneurship. I have this like itch, you know, where do you start? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, Kevin. And thanks again for coming today. We're, we're really happy to have you here. So really you start by taking that, that first step. You know, there is no kind of official process or anything like that. Like a athlete, my academic training was forensic science. I never had a business course in my life and incorporated my first company, Proteus, out of the dorm room and didn't know what I was doing and effectively had to learn on the job. So really that 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 first step is just actually doing it. Uh, you know, entrepreneur is action. And so you really gotta take that, take that first step. I didn't necessarily possess any kind of desire to be an entrepreneur, but it just it just kind of happened. So what was Proteus? So Proteus effectively started out, I was just an internet dork. I was a computer dork. Uh, this is 1996. So back then to get on the internet, it was pretty difficult. You had to do IRQ ports and things of that nature. But uh, I was interning for what's called the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and I was going to be an investigator. That was what my academic career had led me up to be. Uh, to be. I had this great internship. I was doing commodities fraud investigation over the internet. It was very cutting edge. Um, for a young kid, I had a lot of responsibility. I had the attention of you know, the, the commissioner of the CFTC, and I really liked it. But what ended up happening, life took me in a different path, and that was effectively the lawyers in enforcement. So there's investigators and lawyers. 
they saw that I was an internet dork and they had wives that had law firms in DC. And they said, can you build my wife's, you know, uh, law firm website? And I said, sure, for 20 bucks an hour I can, which as a student is a lot of money. And so um, I built, you know, law firm websites and brought on a co-founder, if you will. I was the coder. He was kind of the designer, Tim Shea. And um, again, you know, talking to the lawyers, I said, man, I'm pulling in all this money. They're going to do a background check on me. I need to pay my taxes. And they're lawyers. They say, well, you should get incorporated. And I did. And at that point, got a, a pretty big contract with OmniPoint. And I listened to a mentor that said, don't take the job with the government, go run your business. And if it doesn't work out, you can always come back. And that's exactly what I did. And, and the rest, as they say, is history. Did you learn coding like from your academic work or did you, it was kind of self, self-taught? self Nope, just self-taught. So back in those days, uh, you know, there really were no books. I was just, like I said, a computer dork. There, none of my classes, you know, had anything to do with computer science. But back then you would look at other you know, let's call them web apps or websites, you'd look at the code and you'd just kind of figure out how to do it yourself. And so you looked at another site's code and you, you did it yourself and, and it was a very, you know, do-it-yourself community. And that's, that's effectively how I taught myself to code. I guess I asked that because to me, at least from a personal standpoint, it seems like even sitting in that class, there's a lot of apps your class, I mean, the accelerator that you invited me to uh, sit in on today. There's a lot of apps and coding and people that possess these tangible skills that they can turn into a business. Now, we talked on the ride in about a lot of these like fluff type majors that you don't really come out with like a tangible skill to translate into a business necessarily. So like what advice do you have for athletes that might be in that boat that don't have that coding background or knowledge from their degree, but they want to start a business? So athletes, in my view, make phenomenal entrepreneurs. They're just kind of not aware of the intangibles that they already possess, that they already have, that really kind of can't be taught, if you will, right? So if you're a top performing athlete, you have tenacity, you have grit, you go through and you learn plays and you practice them time and time and time again. And the outside people see that as, well, it's failure, right? If a play didn't work out, it's failure. That's not what an athlete thinks of it. If a play doesn't work out, they're like, okay, I'm going to do something else until, until it does work. Same thing when I was coding. When my code didn't work, I didn't sit there and think, oh, it, it fa- I failed. I just said, no, it doesn't work. I got to keep doing it till it works. And so athletes, especially top performing athletes, already possess these intangibles that are so valuable for entrepreneurship. It's just they kind of need that mentorship and that guidance to take that first step. And so, yeah, you think of, you know, the current generation probably knows George Foreman from the George Foreman grill, whereas my generation, Generation X, knows him as a world champion boxer. But he was able to take that and and apply it to the to the Foreman grill and as an entrepreneur. No, that's very true because that's how I know him as yep. uh, for sure. And in the class today that I, you allowed me to sit into, we talked. you talked about pivoting. And I mean, obviously there's a pivot in that transition to life after football, but I think what you had mentioned in class was like what you start out doing might necessarily not be what it ends up being. Exactly. Exactly. And so 
if you're a top performing athlete, right, you are emotionally committed, you're physically committed, you know, your time commitment to doing that, right? And you've done it and you've got to, you know, wherever you've gotten on that pyramid. And there's obviously a lot of people below you, you know, but there's still some people, people above you. And if you don't, let's quote unquote say make it, right, to the professional ranks, that doesn't mean that it's all over, right? You just have to take that skill set and those intangibles that you have and apply them to again entrepreneurship, innovation, and things of that nature. And the good investors, the good hiring managers, they look for your skill set and your life story. And top performing athletes like you met, you know, Terrell and Jeremiah, they absolutely have that. They just don't yet know how to tell that story. And that's where you come in. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess another question that I have that is also like, so you have the skill barrier potentially, but then you also have like a capital barrier. Like you need to make money. You know, you come out of school. I mean, some athletes have maybe no debt because they had scholarships, but for a large majority of them, that's not the case. So usually the lowest hanging fruit is like, I need to get a job so I can get cash. Mm -hmm. So what's like your recommendation for an athlete who wants to explore entrepreneurship, but may lack the capital at the moment upon graduation or retirement? Yeah, that's a great question because we all have to pay the bills at the end of the day. So what I would say at that point is try to get a position or quote unquote job at some type of startup, right? And so by going to work at a startup, you're going to learn everything. You're going to see marketing happening. You're going to see HR happening. You're going to see sales happening. You're going to see executive leadership happening. If you go and work for a big company, you know, as we talked about today in program and we keep underscoring, they have a process. So you're going to be the guy behind the person, behind the person, behind the person, behind the person. They're going to teach you a process and you'll master that, but that's all you're going to learn. And it's not to say it's good or bad, but if you go to work at a startup, you're going to be able to see those things and unfold right in front of you and you're going to learn so much more. And so, for example, Emily, right? She's part of the cohort. She's a part of what's called Venture for America. And Venture for America, that's what they do. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, but you don't yet have your 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 kind of idea for your venture, they place you in a startup so that you see all those things so that you can kind of get that fellowship of, of learning what, what a startup is all about. So I would say go to work for a startup. Now, the problem is sometimes startups don't pay that much money. We all have to pay the bills. So you might not be able to do that. What I would then say is, go get a job selling, sell something, right? I'm not talking about go work at Best Buy or Home Depot where you're kind of a glorified stock stock handler. I'm talking go somewhere where a qualified lead comes in and you have to sell them on something. As it relates to me, I was in college and I was working at a bike shop and I'm left-handed, so I wasn't a very good mechanic. So they put me on the sales floor. People came in, again, a qualified lead. They wanted to buy a bike. They wanted to spend $150. I had to convince them to spend $250. Then I had to say, oh, you want the kickstand? That's extra. Oh, now you need a helmet with this. And I had to upsell them on water bottles and all that type of stuff. That is a skill set that will last with you for the rest of your life. And again, entrepreneurship in the very beginning, you, you heard us say, it's only one of two things. You're either selling or you're building. And so if you can't build, go get a job where you're selling because that trait will last for you with, with your lifetime. Interesting. You into cycling? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was not a top level cyclist. Let's just be abundantly clear. Uh, but yeah, I was I was a cyclist and and worked in a bike shop for about four years. Yep, that's cool. I've I've recently enjoyed 
getting into cycling, but talk about upcharging. You you, you sign up for like a, a fitting on a bike, yeah, uh-huh. which is like oh the hundred fifty dollars for the guy's time to fit you on the bike. But what they don't mention is like, well, you need a new seat, yeah. you need a new uh, handle bar. You Your need, stem's not long enough. Yeah, stem's and not long the, enough. The reach on the bars isn't there. And <laughs> I'm like, yep. it's six hundred dollars later. I'm yeah. like, wow, that really escalated pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, you and I can talk offline about about bikes. I'm your huckleberry there. Trust me. <laughs> All right, really cool. So you mentioned some getting into sales or a, a startup. That, that's all definitely great advice. And I think I've interviewed some athletes who have found success in med device sales and real estate and stuff in, in that nature. Do you have any tips for like, all right, I've been here for a year. Let's make that transition. Or is it is it kind of like that skill acquisition? Like when you know you're you're ready to make that leap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's really, that's a great question. So there's really no formula, right? If you saved up X, now it's now it's time to make the leap, right? That's just not there. I always like to say, you know, the small decisions are kind of made for us. We use data. The big decisions, since we don't have any data, we have to use our gut, right? And so that's really only something you can, you know, any any one person can can do for themselves. But, you know, as you heard us say, to be successful at this, you need to be committed to your venture. You can't just be involved. You can't tangentially do it on the side or anything like that. You have to be fully committed to that. And so, you know, that's a long way of me saying I can't I can't answer that with anybody, but what I can say tactically is it's rent and ramen. You know, this is not the time to buy nice cars or anything like that. You just want rent and ramen. It's you're committed, you're putting your credit cards on the line to fund this thing to get it off the ground. People like to say entrepreneurs are are good with risk. I don't see it so much as that as they're okay with uncertainty, right? Because we don't yet know, you know, what if you do X, Y is gonna happen, right? So yeah, there's a risk with putting your own credit card on there and things of that nature, but they're okay with uncertainty. So it's okay that you don't know what's gonna come next, but yeah, that's gonna be part of the game. I think that's like the biggest life lesson that I think everyone, including myself, needs to get better at is like being comfortable going into the unknown. Because I even use the example of like today, you know, like I had never met you before today. We talked on the phone for a bit, but I was like, well, nothing bad can happen from me just going down here and learning and sitting in the cohort. And I'm like, this is like the best day ever for me. Yeah. Like so yeah. far, I'm like, I'm so glad that I, and, I and now look at, you know, this. we're, we're doing this. You sat in on the class, you met the cohort, you met the fellows, but now think of it, you know, again, it's, it's compounding, right? Think of how big your network just got today, right? You just met 12 founders of eight different ventures, and those people are all going to go on to meet other people and do things and raise money and get revenue and all that. You stay in touch with them and it's going to have a compounding effect on, on your life. That's for sure. What was your analogy for uh, being committed versus being involved? <laughs> so I, I use the cow analogy, which is the cow that gives milk is involved. The cow that gives steak is committed. And so you need to be committed to this, to, to your venture. You can't just be involved. Yeah. And just like in sports, like athletes, you know, if you want to be an elite level athlete, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. You can't do it on the side. You can't, you know, okay, well, I'm only going to show up to practice on the weekends and things of that nature. No, you have two a days and you have film, you know, and you have meetings and you have, you know, research on opponents and the list goes on and on and on. And the same thing with going into the unknown is like, you can prepare all you want, you know, yeah. throughout the week for that. I'm, I'm a football guy. So like, I think you have one game a week. So you're preparing all week for that game, but you have no idea what that your star quarterback like Terrell might go out with an Achilles injury, yeah, you know, like yeah, you, yeah. you can't prepare for that, but that that's an unknown, but you have to be ready and adapt to that and pivot. You yeah. Know, on those yeah. Unknowns, yeah. So. so stick, sticking on the kind of athlete thing, 
you know, there's this big debate of, do you write a business plan for, for you know, a venture creation? And I, I'm firmly in the camp of no, right? And I have a colleague that's kind of considered the grandfather of, of entrepreneurship in, in academia, Steve Blank at Stanford. And he likes to say, no business plan survives contact with the market, which is a playoff of the general from the Franco-Persian War that said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. I prefer the Mike Tyson quote, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, like there's no sense in writing a 50 page business plan when you have no real world market, you know, exposure with with your venture, because almost all of your assumptions are going to be proven untrue. And so what's more important is for you to just go out into the market and you will get punched because your plan is not going to is not going to go according to plan. And I think sometimes like the business plan almost becomes like a barrier to entry because yeah. you're like, well, oh, I need to get this done. And like, and yeah. then a year and a half goes by and you're like, you're still on the same paragraph. You're still, you're still on it. And, and, and again, you know, entrepreneurship is, there's no process. If there was, we'd give you all a book and would say, read this book, follow this process and, and go do it. You have to figure out the process. And so the fact that you think you're going to keep up with some 50 page, you know, assumption written document with, as you're going out there, figuring out the process, it's just not going to happen. A business plan is once you get the process down and that's, that's, that's when you start to do it. Then you get into the, the nitty gritty of that stuff. Yep. So can you t- tell us a little bit more about the Townsend Accelerator program and how that all started and what, what kind of the mission is? Effectively, we have an application and we're looking for, so we're looking for new ventures, meaning that if you want to open up a restaurant or let's say a landscaping company, that this is not the program for you, right? And there's certainly a lot of education for those types of things. So we're looking for people that are creating, you know, new ventures, new products and services that haven't yet been done before. And so there is an application. It's a it's about 25 questions and there's some business things in there, but nothing that's going to scare anybody. You don't need to have any classes in business or anything like that. We then interview the the founders, you know, to make sure they're kind of I don't want to say the quality, but kind of have the tenacity that we're looking for and things of that nature. If you're accepted into the program, it's an eight-week residency programming, meaning you're here for eight weeks. And during that eight weeks, you're effectively working together as a cohort and you're collaborating and you're building and selling and you're working on your venture. Now, during those eight weeks, we give you programming, which you sat in on today. So that's on things like leadership and company culture and equity and how to fundraise and sales and all that type of stuff, right? And it's very, very, very detailed and entrepreneur focused. Uh, It's not a class like a typical class. We do give you $10,000 to help you be committed. We don't require any equity in your company. And that $10,000, we expect you to only do rent and ramen and then put the rest into into your venture to to get traction. Then about you know, six weeks after the accelerator, we have what's called the showcase. And that's where each venture pitches their their venture for about five minutes. It's not Shark Tank. There's no questions. There's no winners or losers. Each venture does that. In the audience, we have people from the university, but we also have people from the community. That includes investors, potential customers, potential partners. It's about 300 people that show up. And so after everyone pitches, we then have uh, refreshments and food so that you can you know, meet people in the audience that are interested in, like I said, potentially investing in your venture or, be, or being a partner. And from there, we have space that uh, you'll see later on this afternoon 
but you can then move your venture upstairs uh, where we have offices for you and conference rooms and things of that nature. And then you still have access to me and the team because you know I, I'm still in touch with ventures that I worked out of JMU back in 2017. You know, we're still texting each other and, and, and helping them out as much as possible. So that's the, the program at Towson. And there's a spectrum of where people are at in their businesses yep. that go into this program, right? Yep. There's some people that have $25,000 worth of sales every month. Yep. And there's other people who don't have a don't have any revenue yep. or a website. Yep. Right. Yep. So I'm just saying like basically anyone listening to this who is an athlete, like it, it could just be an idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, usually we, usually we're looking for some, they got some MVP out there, right. And they have something, but in the case that you just talked about, which was specifically, you know, athletes, right. That's Terrell and Jeremiah and Wayne and their, and their venture, good choice productions. You know, when I spoke with them over the phone, I interviewed them, there was two things, you know, one, I knew these guys had the intangibles, but then two, the timing was right. Right. We're starting to see this wave. And it obviously we had a, we had a big crescendo last night with the Supreme court saying, you know, Hey man, this, you know, nil, this name image likeness is, yeah, that's a barrier, right? You got to, you know, that's, that's monopolistic. You got to stop that. Right. But that's not what GCP is all about. And so COVID exposed that like these student employee, you know, student athletes aren't just regular students who are in shape. They are literally essential employees. Some schools, the professors got to stay home during COVID. They weren't essential employees, but at some schools, the basketball and football players had to show up. They had to be quarantined. They couldn't go home for break and they had to fulfill the TV contracts. So this is the time to do this. And I believe that Terrell, uh, Jeremiah and Wayne are the right people to get it done. And so we're super happy to have them in the cohort. Can you tell us a little bit about like what led you to Towson? You know, yeah, entrepreneur, yeah. but you got back into academia. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, after doing two companies, usually, you know, at this point I was, I was, yeah, I think I was 40. The quintessential thing to do is to go into venture capital and become a partner, you know, or maybe even, you know, start your own venture capital firm. And you do that. That's just not who I am. You know, you and I don't know each other super well, but I'm not your normal run of the person, right? I'm all kind of tatted up and I just want to do things my way. I like punk music, you know, all that type of stuff. And so in between Proteus and Single Point, I had taught at, just adjuncted at Georgetown University. And it wasn't so much Georgetown, but just the academic setting. I just really enjoy being around young people that yet haven't been kind of, I hate to say it, tainted by the outside world. Like they're kind of so fresh and it's just nice to be around that. And I, I really get a lot of energy out of that. And so fast forward, you know, almost a decade later and, you know, I'm in Connecticut, I've sold, you know, the second company's down and I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I thought back to Georgetown, I went to Yale University and that's where I found the Yale Entrepreneur Institute, where they were helping students and faculty at Yale start ventures. And I said, this is exactly what I want to do. So I went from Yale, got more exposure and more kind of into academia at Brown University. And I loved that and said, I'm ready to be an ED, meaning an executive director. I'd kind of like, you know, made that transition again, all through kind of entrepreneur ta uh, tactics. You know, it was all about traction and things of that nature. But here's what I didn't want. I love the Ivy League, but I couldn't identify with those students. You know, we're talking, not all of them, but some of the students, they're like, hey, I grew up on Central Park and 77th West. And, you know, my mom's an executive at NBC and knew your work at Proteus when you did the NBC contract. That's just not 
my my world. I was a kid that my dad was in the Navy. He passed away when I was eight. My mom was a public high school teacher. I didn't grow up in that world. And so I wanted a non-brand name school and I wanted a state school because state schools are are the biggest mobility, social mobility movers that there are. And so JMU uh, presented itself and I was the executive director there for three years and loved it and really got a lot out of that work. And so created the same accelerator we have here. And it's been very, very rewarding and fulfilling work. Uh, loved JMU. Uh, got the largest naming gift in the history of the school. The students went on to raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars. We beat, quote unquote, better schools with smarter students and bigger budgets and all that type of stuff. Let's just say some of them are, are of Ivy League pedigree because I like to say entrepreneurship is a meritocracy, right? But with that said, you know, Harrisonburg really wasn't my jam uh, location-wise. So left JMU in, in, you know, very good setting. And once TU and the Mid-Atlantic region uh, opened themselves up to me, I, I jumped at the chance and I'm very happy I'm here. Yeah, no, yeah, Baltimore seems like a, a great a great area. What was the advice that you gave your daughter and I think stepdaughter, you said? Yeah, yeah. Uh, when they were going into college. Um, only because I'm just thinking, you know, <laughs> who's listening to this now? You know, there's probably a lot of college athletes. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a unique opportunity that I think you don't realize the opportunity until it's over for many people. Yeah, yeah. you're so right. And so I don't know who said this, but somebody smarter than me said this. They're like you should do college twice, once for, for practice and once for real, right? I, I agree. And I remember when I was at Georgetown, I used to, um, you know, I would finish up the class. I had about 30 students. And I said, okay, there's this great, legit college bar um, called The Tombs, which I'd recommend everyone goes to. And so I'd said, okay, you know, we're done with class. I'll take you out to, to a meal at The Tombs. We wouldn't get beer or anything like that. I'd get, I'd get them just stuff to eat. And I'd, I'd say, you can ask me any question you want. And I was amazed that everyone was like, there's no girls here. There's no guys here. There's nobody me. And I'm like, are you insane? They're all over the place. They're all your age and they all want to meet other people. And further to that, you can talk about politics and religion, the things that are considered the third rail, you know, when 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 you get out, quote unquote, into the real world. And so I have a daughter that's that's a sophomore at UConn, and I have a stepdaughter that's a sophomore at Penn State. And I constantly tell them, I'm like, look, go out and meet as many people as you can. You'll almost get a better education than what you're going to get in the classroom. You're going to get exposed to different religions, different socioeconomic classes, different opinions on politics, different everything. And you can discuss those, become friends with them, maybe get in a relationship with them, the whole nine yards. I don't care if you go to work for a bank or for Google or for Apple, you will never have that opportunity ever again in your life. And so you got to take advantage of it. Right. And even just establishing a network like to become an entrepreneur, could, you never know what, where it could lead. The importance of a personal network cannot be overstated. And again, that's part of like going back to student athletes and what GCP is trying to do. The outside world, the armchair quarterbacks, no pun intended, see it as, well, you should be privileged. You got a free education. My kid had to pay for their education. Well, here's what they don't tell you. Those D1 football athletes, they're partitioned from the rest of the students. They don't get to do you know, study abroad. They don't have a normal Thanksgiving or spring break, depending on their sport, just like just like your kid has. They're doing a completely separate thing than what a normal, you know, co-ed is doing is doing at any university. And so, yeah, take advantage of it as much as you can. 
Yeah, you want to be committed to your sport. That means you're not committed to an internship in the summer. Yeah, or, they're not getting yeah. any of that. You know, you know, Wayne worked the locker room. <laughs> you know, like his internship was literally doing, you know, the locker room for the football team he played on. I mean, come on, come on. <laughs> you know, yeah, the like, skills you're getting there aren't yeah. going to, yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the success that you guys had at JMU? I know you're, yeah. you're, you're very proud of that. Yeah, thing. you know, so so like I said, I, I was a student entrepreneur and I was at George Washington University, had never taken a business class in my life. I got incorporated. I was an RA in the dorms and I, I walked over to the business school and I said, hey, I just incorporated, you know, I'm graduating in May. Can you give me any advice? And they were like, I don't know, go get a patent, right? Like that's a, no joke. That's what happened. And so- you know, my thing is I always, you know, at least with the student entrepreneurs, I say, I'm trying to give you everything I wish I had back then. And so it's not academic. We're not doing interviews. We're, you know, with potential customers, we're going out there and getting actual customers and putting our products and services into the market. And so the result was, is that the three years I was, I was there, we had three cohorts of JMU students and those ventures have gone on to raise just a little bit north of $15 million. And then again, how does it look in traction, right? When I first got there, there was a competition at UVA called the Virginia College Cup. So it was all the Virginia state schools. So you're talking JMU, Virginia Tech, UVA, William & Mary. And it didn't matter if you were undergrad or grad. So JMU's predominantly an undergrad school. Some schools sent law students, some schools sent MBA students, some schools sent med students. We had a venture at JMU uh, led by two JMU uh, kids, Connor Ferrochi and Tim Mulligan, called BeatGig. And BeatGig was a platform to book artists. And they had a platform. And I said, Connor, if you work with me on your pitch, I promise you'll win. And the winnings were $10,000. Not insignificant, right? And the irony is, before yesterday, if you were a student athlete, that would have been illegal to get the $10,000. So I always find that funny. But anyway... Connor listened to me, put together a great pitch deck, and the result was not only did he win the $10,000, it was at UVA, he won the audience vote as well. And the reason was, yeah, he had a great pitch deck, but he also had $50,000 worth of revenue in his company. Everybody else was stuck at that academic level of, well, I have an idea and I'm not yet in the market. And I don't know if anybody's actually going to use this. Whereas Connor had $50,000 in revenue because he was doing B-Gig at Virginia Tech, at UVA, and at JMU. And so the you know they've done they've done very well. We go can, out and do the work. Go out and do it. It's it's you have to. It's a noun, right? Entrepreneur is a noun, not a verb. And so you got to actually do it. So yeah, we had quite a few in those, and we were we were you know I always like to say it's a, it's one of the last meaning entrepreneurship. It's one of the last meritocracies left. But going back to student athletes, on any given day, you know. Any team can win if you're not if you're not you know prepared and and all that type of stuff. Same thing with entrepreneurship. Where do you think college athletics goes wrong in making basically the athletes like unprepared for sport, unprepared for life after sports, but entrepreneurship specifically? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and unfortunately, that's only one that I can sympathize with, not empathize. But having a wife that you know played D one basketball. And, you know, knowing the student athletes that I knew at Brown, that I knew at JMU, and now obviously, you know, Syracuse with Terrell and and Jeremiah and Wayne, again, the armchair quarterbacks are like, hey, you got a free education. The mere fact that these kids have gone through and are emotionally committed to their school and physically committed 
so much so that they they maybe walk away with life changing injuries. Eric Grand, I interviewed yep. him. Yeah. Yep, yep. The list goes. I mean, it's it's replete with examples of that, right? And the mere fact that they're going to do that, and you're going to say at the end of four years, "Good luck with your sociology degrees. See you later." That is one of the biggest travesties. And you're talking about. Let's think of it this way: in two percent difference, hundred meter dash, the fastest you know, event in sports, right? The 100 meter dash. The difference between 2% is Usain Bolt in first place and fifth place. I forget the gentleman's name. He was 2% slower than Usain Bolt. In college football, only 1.6% of the kids actually get drafted that are eligible for the draft. So you're talking the distinction between less than 2% is nothing and getting drafted. That is one of the most cutthroat things there is. And these programs always lead these kids to believe all the way down to D3 that they can potentially make it into the NFL. And they can potentially make it into the NFL. Don't get me wrong. But the reality is, is that the vast, vast, vast majority of them are not. And so it's like anything else, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. And they're not preparing these kids for what is the majority of them will never, never achieve. And so they they need to prepare them for that. And they're not doing that. And it's a travesty because, again, they possess these intangibles that entrepreneurs have that the rest of the student body probably doesn't have. Yeah, and not all schools don't put a prioritization on kind of be, the beyond football programs. I, I know I mentioned yeah, to you. Uh, I listened to that and I looked at their site and that is, that's phenomenal. And there needs to be, and, and, and why should it end at four years? I don't understand that either. You know? I mean, look, at some point, you're going to realize... The arthritis lasts longer than that. <laughs> yeah, the arthritis lasts way longer than that. So, you know, here I am. I have sacrificed myself for four years, again, emotionally and physically. And a year passes, and I realized, I, you know, there's that saying that athletes die two deaths. They die their first death when they can't play their sport anymore, then they actually die their, their actual death. So now I just died my death if I can't play my sport anymore. You need mental health. You need mental support in that. You need, again, somebody to work with you on life goals, financial literacy. The list goes on and on and on and on, and they are not preparing that. So the fact is, is that if you took, even at high-performing schools, if you took most of those players and put them instead when they were when they were 18 years old into, I don't know, an apprenticeship to be an electrician or an HVAC or a welder or whatever, and you did that when they were 18 years old, they would be well ahead by the time they they were 22 years old than the football player was and that's that's just that's just the numbers don't lie yeah i joke around with, like with my parents now that like i wish i didn't go to school i wish i just like went to school to become an electrician like i would have been yeah potentially better off yeah but i think these days kids want the oh well, i'm a d1 athlete or whatever or you know yeah say i went to this school or you know it's like a pissing contest to yeah. some degree so you've been in academia for a while now yep have you come across like specific athletes that have found success in entrepreneurship? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, had a lineman from Brown and another lineman from JMU. So the lineman from Brown, Rory, great guy. You know, kind of kept telling him like, "Man, go the startup route." Right? Rory is at a company called Rally right now uh, and is killing it. And Rally is killing it. So Rally is that company that they started off in cars. So like, if you wanted to own a you know a share, just like a share in a company. A Ferrari, you would buy the share and then they they would acquire the Ferrari and then you could sell that share off to somebody else. 
And now they're moving to like buying the Declaration of Independence. They just raised, I think it was $30 million. Rory got involved with that when he was when he was a student athlete at, at Brown University. Rich Q is a lineman from, from JMU. And he went through, my, through the accelerator program at JMU and, and had a company called Hydra, pitched against Georgetown University and won. And then another Brown student, uh, oddly enough, his parents went to JMU. Lacrosse player that I had at Brown took exactly what you know what I was saying to, to heed and did Venture for America. And he's now in Baltimore at a very hot, uh, very hot, I forget the name of the company, uh, IoT company, Internet of Things company. And he's now an executive there. So yeah, the the examples of the athletes that that I had, which I didn't have that that many, but yeah, they've gone on to do great things in entrepreneurship. Why do you think there hasn't been a lot of athletes that like go through your programs? Lack of time or yeah, I think it's lack of exposure. And like again, if you're a top level athlete, you know you have to have horse blinders on. You just really do. You can't open it up. And so, which is again why we're saying like, why should it end at four years? You know, it shouldn't have to. And so, and that should be potentially, you know, nobody wants to go to more meetings, but that needs to be part of the programming of these universities is that, hey man, there are other paths. It's not just student athletes, it's the entire student body. You know, like we're all kind of taught, you know, oh, go to, go to school, get the degree and then go get the job and all that type of stuff. Well, some of the best entrepreneurs I have come from performing arts or they come from, physics, you know, these kind of non quote unquote business, you know, entrepreneur type degrees. And so that's what we do here at, at, at TU and at JMU. We're trying to expose the students that, Hey, this is a potential path for you if you want, and you don't have to be a business major to do it. There's all these sorts of entrepreneurship, like majors out there now and MBA programs. What value do you see? I'm curious what your opinion is being in academia. Do you th- think they're worth their value? Or do you need to have a degree basically to, like, to be an entrepreneur? Well, okay. So this is a fact. If you want to go work for somebody else, you typically need a degree, right? There is no requirement whatsoever in any state in the 50 states of the United States of America for you to have a degree to incorporate. None. There's no requirement. When you sign those incorporation papers, whether it's an LLC, C-Corp, S-Corp, it doesn't matter. There's no requirement for a degree. So I, that's that's number one that I always like to say, right? There's no requirement for a degree. Number two is, and again, these, this is my opinion, right? Not of, of Towson Universe or anything like that, but it's a noun. Entrepreneur is a noun, right? And so these degrees, I always like to say this. Let's stick away from athletes for a second. Let's talk about let's talk about military and vets. Just because you have a PhD in war history doesn't make you a vet, right? And so the only thing that makes you an entrepreneur is actually being an entrepreneur and doing it. There's another saying that I like to I like to say, which is trying to teach entrepreneurship without actually having been an entrepreneur is like trying to teach music appreciation without having played an instrument. And so Yes. Are there things you can learn, you know, in the university setting? Are there skill sets you can pick up? Yes, absolutely. hundred percent. Are you an entrepreneur? No, you're not an entrepreneur until till, till you're actually an entrepreneur. Where do you start in the venture creation process? Like you have an idea. What's like the first step? Yeah. So if we had, if we had like a slide deck here, I would show you that like starting a traditional business again, like let's say a restaurant or you just went to UPenn dental school and now you want to open up a dental practice or, like or a whatever. Coffee shop or something. Yeah. Or a coffee yeah. shop. It doesn't matter. All those types of things, right? 
That's like a symphony, right? And universities and higher education are very good at, at doing that. Venture creation, though, is like jazz, right? Like it's all over the place. It's it's you don't know it, it dips when it da- you think it's going to dab, it goes left, right, up, down, all over the place, right? And so you've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. There, I wish there was a process. There is no process. But effectively, what we're encouraging you to do is get out there in the marketplace and then let the market dictate how that process goes and what what ultimately your product or service becomes. Because what you started out as might not be ultimately what where where you go. And there's a million examples of companies that changed. Again, Instagram started off as bourbon, right? And once they got the photo filter down and launched Instagram, they had more users in in the first week on Instagram than they had in over a year with bourbon. So they started off as this one, you know, thing and they they came into something else. There's a there's a ton of examples like that. So let the marketplace kind of dictate that. You know, these idea com- you know competitions, you got to be kidding me, man. You know like I don't care about your idea. It's worthless. I care about are you going to take your idea, put it in the marketplace and go from there. So I think it'd be a good example as we kind of wrap up the the interview here. I mean, we have I interviewed Terrell on the podcast. His episode is going to go up probably before yours does, but they're at the early phases. So like, what are you encouraging them to do for their first steps to take that action? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So without, I guess, giving away the kind of their Yeah, idea. yeah, yeah. So, so, so the first thing was, was, you know, I told him, I said, look, we got to have your website up. You got, you got like, what are you, what do you, what's your mission? What are you trying to, trying to achieve? So right? a good first step could yep. be making a website. Yep. Making a website. So we got that right. So now we're going into, okay, what, tactically are you doing to achieve this mission? Like, what does that look like? Right. And so we're coming up with, okay, is it programming? Is it white labeled? Is it with other, other people? We know, for example, with them, that financial literacy is a key component that student athletes, athletes need, right? Well, we know a company, Ordis Academy, Aaron Velke, who's a former, a former athlete as well. That's all he does is financial literacy. And, you know, do we have Aaron work with them and, and Terrell gives the programming or do we white label it, you know, and have Aaron and his company do it? Like, we're not sure on that yet, but that's, those are the next steps, for example, that, that we're figuring out. And again, the marketplace will, will kind of, will kind of dictate that, but we got to just keep doing that AB testing and see what works out. So basically don't overcomplicate it. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, I mean, keep doesn't it, have to be like, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be this big. Like you know, they show all these things like rockets taking off, and you know, you know, all that. That's not entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is this big, long runway. You know, that goes on for years and years and years. Proteus was 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 five years until SMS texting started really taking off. Right? It's this big, long runway. I always like to say, how long was Uber in San Francisco? Three years in just one market until they expanded out into New York City. So the fact that like it's going to be this big launch and it's going to be this rocket, no it's not. It's a it's a runway that takes a long time and then gradually your plane finally starts to take off and as you keep that momentum going, your plane will stay up in the air and go even higher. But everyone in the cohort right now is on that runway. You know, some are further down the runway but With you a know, little less weight in yep, the Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the storage compartment? Yep. I end my podcast or every episode with the same question. And I know as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you've been through the ringer. So this would be a good one for you. But what's your definition of toughness? Toughness, in my view, is not being able to control 
I don't control the scenario, but I still show up and take it. And I don't know if I'm going to go down or be the one standing over somebody else. And so it is doing what's required without knowing or having any control in the environment around you. And so entrepreneurship is going after, even though you don't control the purse strings, you don't have access to the capital, you don't have any of that stuff. And as it relates to a student athlete, toughness is, yeah, that guy might outweigh me by 40 pounds, but I have a job to do as part of this team and you know whatever else I'm going to do it. Thank you so much for not only sharing your knowledge on the podcast, but also the hospitality and having me come down here and introducing me to everyone. It's been a a true pleasure and and an honor to come down here. Excellent. Love your podcast. Love what you're doing. And thanks so much for coming down. We we really enjoyed having you. One last thing. Where can people um, like apply to the, the startup? program. Yep. And- so if you go to Towson.edu, you'll be able to, if you just, I think it's Towson.edu slash startup uh, and you'll see, you'll see all our stuff. All right, cool. So if you got some ideas out there and you've made some progress, we'd then, love to hear from you. Yeah, that'd be great. Excellent. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Patrick.